Today on the Matt Wall Show, I have somehow become the number one LGBT author in the world. This is a twist no one was, no one expected. We'll talk about that today. Also, the parents of the Oxford High School shooter are being charged with manslaughter. Is that the right move, or does it set a dangerous precedent for the future, or could it possibly be, could both be true, possibly? Plus, Camilla Harris's henpecked staffers go to increasingly awkward yet hilarious lengths to prove that they're happy to work for her. And the New York Times says that hotels in New York should be turned into homeless encampments. What could possibly go wrong there? A lot, it turns out. Finally, in our daily cancellation, Rashida Tlaib makes a pitch for student loan forgiveness. But I'll explain why she is herself personally a perfect example of why there should not be student loan forgiveness. All of that and more today on The Matt Wall Show. Now, a quick word from Policy Genius. You know, if you don't have life insurance yet, uh, you should really, you know, I know people kind of put it off getting life insurance, but it is a responsibility. It's a moral responsibility that you have uh, to the people who depend on you, your loved ones. And the great thing is that uh, if it seems like a daunting task to get life insurance, it's not or with Policy Genius. All you got to do is head to policygenius.com and answer a few questions about yourself. In minutes, you can work out how much life insurance coverage you need and compare personalized quotes to find your best Price. You could save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. Maybe before Policy Genius, this would have been a daunting task. It's not anymore. Their licensed experts will help you understand your options and apply for a policy. The Policy Genius team works for you, not the insurance company, so you know you can trust them to offer unbiased help and advocate for you at every step until you're covered. Policy Genius doesn't add on extra fees or sell your info to third parties. It's straightforward. What you see is what you get. Since 2014, Policy Genius has helped over 30 million people shop for insurance. You could be one of them. Head to policygenius.com to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Well, I never imagined that I would be responsible for writing the literary sensation of 2021. Least of all, that I would write it on cardboard. And yet, my book, Johnny the Walrus, about a boy who identifies as a walrus and is now available at johnnythewalrus.com or on Amazon, has taken the world by storm. Critics are hailing it as a masterpiece. I haven't heard any critics say that exactly, but it's safe to assume that they, they probably have said it. But forget about the critics. Just listen to some of these emails I've received. I've gotten a lot of emails from people who've gotten the book uh, or reacting to the book. Satisfied customers have messaged me, stunned by the sheer depth and breadth of my trans walrus novel. One reader said, WTF, is this supposed to be serious? Another raved, kind of expensive for a board book. And still another proclaimed, this is the weirdest thing you've done. And another tells me that the book is, quote, funny, but, quote, pretty objectionable on a number of levels. See, these are significant accolades. And now we can add another. Johnny the Walrus is the number one bestseller on Amazon's LGBTQ plus book list. Yes, on Sunday morning, the Lord's Day, a day uh, after we had re-released the book on Amazon because our first run sold out in less than 24 hours, I awoke to discover that Johnny the Walrus had not only been categorized as an LGBT book, but had become the best-selling title in that genre, and still is today. As it stands right now, my story about a trans walrus child is the number one bestseller in LGBT books, beating out such LGBT hits as The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, Badass Affirmations, The Wit and Wisdom of Wild Women, the gay Christmas romance novel Only One Bed, a book called Mr. Naughty and Mr. Nice, and another book called Holla Gay. I never imagined I would beat out Holligay, but I did. Just to be very clear about this, because it seems I must emphasize this point. Johnny the Walrus is about a kid who identifies as a walrus, and whose mother takes him to, be, to the doctor to have him surgically transitioned, and gets him walrus hormone pills, and then eventually tries to drop him off at a zoo to live with other walruses. 
This, Amazon has decided, is an LGBT story. There would seem to be a, a certain admission being made here. I don't know. And you might even say that by writing a trans walrus kids book and not only topping the Amazon charts, but getting the book classified as LGBT, our plan has worked perfectly. You might say that this whole thing is our trolling masterpiece, our Sistine Chapel of trolling. That's one interpretation. But it's not the conclusion that I choose to draw from this situation. Personally, I take quite seriously my new status as the leading LGBT voice in the nation. I never expected to be such a prominent member of the community or to be a member at all, frankly, but I will happily embrace this unexpected role. I can tell you that I, I solemnly swear that I will faithfully fulfill the obligations of my office. This is not something I take lightly. In other words, to the LGBT lobby, I have to say, I'm the captain now. But fear not, I have big plans for us going forward. You're, you're, uh, you're going to love it. Or you might not, but I will. And as the leading LGBT author in the world, that's all that really matters, how I feel. Most of all, and this is the real takeaway here, I think. Uh, this, this is the main point. My title as best-selling LGBT children's author means that I am henceforth personally exempt from all criticism. And it's important that you know that, especially if you're in the audience, because there's an obligation that, that falls to you now. And you have to know the rules. Any critiques of me or my opinions or my behavior or my literary work will now be officially and legally categorized as homophobic hate speech. If you refuse to buy my book, Johnny the Walrus, or to download my podcast or to come to my birthday parties or to invite me to your birthday parties, then you are guilty of marginalizing an oppressed minority. If I'm censored on social media or if somehow my book is still banned by Amazon, somehow... It will be gay erasure. Now, you now have a moral obligation to affirm me, agree with me, celebrate me, and especially to purchase my book, which is, need I remind you, a best-selling smash LGBT sensation. Now, those of you who have followed my work for some time know that I have long sought membership in a societally recognized victim group because I covet the power that such membership affords. Up to this point, I've had to make a do with the fact that I'm a member of the visually impaired community, um, it's not great as victim, victimization goes, but it's not nothing. Yet, even so, I've discovered that in the victimhood arcade, not many tokens can be won with mere physical impairments. If you want to be rich in oppression, truly wealthy, you have to find your way into the LGBT fold. And now, here I am. I, I can feel the power coursing through my veins. I am unstoppable. This must be what Spider-Man felt like when he woke up the next morning after getting bit by the spider. This is a fair warning then to all of my critics. I am ineligible for further insults or denunciations. Before you say anything to me or about me, just remind yourself that you are referring to the top LGBT writer in the world. Your criticism is violence. Your failure to compliment me would also be violence. These are the rules. I didn't make them but by God, I will enforce them. So buy my book, you bigots. Now let's get to our five headlines. We all look for shortcuts in life. And one of the shortcuts a lot of people use is that uh, you have multiple accounts online. You just use the same password for all of them. I don't use that strategy. My strategy is I have different passwords and I always forget them. So I have to do the recover password every time I log into anything every day. Um, 
Both strategies, not that great, especially with um, all the cyber attacks that you could experience. Credential stuffing is one of them. Credential stuffing is when cyber criminals get your username and password off the dark web and they try to gain access to your accounts and steal your private information. If you have the same password on multiple accounts and they get they get one of them, now they've got all your accounts and that's the problem. It's important to understand how cybercrime and identity theft are affecting our lives every day. We put our information at risk on the uh, on the internet. In an instant, a cyber criminal could steal what's yours, sometimes even harm your finances, your credit, your reputation, anything. Good thing there's LifeLock. LifeLock helps detect a wide range of identity threats. And if they detect that your information has potentially been compromised, they'll send you an alert and they'll get it taken care of. Nobody can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses, but you can help protect what's yours with LifeLock by Norton. Join now and save up to 25% off your first year at LifeLock.com Walsh. That's LifeLock.com Walsh for 25% off. Uh, okay. All right. Everyone else is starting their shows with uh, real news, and that's what I start with. But, you know, that's what you get on Matt Walsh Show. That's what sets us apart, for better or worse, perhaps worse. Here's, um, here's a real story. And uh, a very interesting case. Horrible case. Tragic. Sad. You know, terrible. Um, from a legal perspective, it, it's also pretty complicated. The parents of the Oxford High School shooter have been charged with involuntary manslaughter uh, after their son killed four people and wounded many others last week during class. Now, before we talk about this decision, let's listen to the DA, Karen McDonald, explain her logic in filing these charges. Now, first she talks about, um, uh, she, she uh, talked to the press on, on Friday and the timing of her address to the press or her press conference. Also, we need to, we need to comment on that. We'll, we'll do that in a second. But so first she explains how they went out and uh, they, they bought their, their 15-year-old son a handgun, apparently. Um, the mother posted about buying the handgun for her son. And then the kid was posing with the gun on social media, re- referring to it as uh, his beauty that had just been bought. Uh, he didn't have the gun in his room, apparently. It was in his parents' room in an unlocked drawer. And um, he was caught at school... I think this was the day before or a couple days before searching for ammo during school hours. And the parents were notified with an email and then uh, and then followed up with a voicemail. But the parents never responded to that. Okay, so the kids at school during school hours looking for ammo and uh, they tried to get a hold of the parents to tell them about it. And the mom never even called back to to respond. Instead, the mother texted her son this message. LOL, I'm not mad. You have to learn not to get caught. Okay, so that was a couple days before the shooting. And that brings us up to the morning of the shooting. And then we'll let uh, Karen McDonald fill in the rest. On November 30th, 21, the morning of the shooting, the next day, Ethan Crumbly's teacher came upon a note on Ethan's desk, which alarmed her to the point that she took a picture of it on her cell phone. The note contained the following. A drawing of a semi-automatic handgun pointing at the words, quote, the thoughts won't stop, help me, end quote. In another section of the note was a drawing of a bullet with the following words above that bullet, quote, blood everywhere, end quote. Between the drawing of the gun and the bullet is a drawing of a person who appears to have been shot twice and bleeding. Below that figure is a drawing of a laughing emoji. Further down the drawing are the words, quote, my life is useless, end quote. And to the right of that are the words, quote, the world is dead, end quote. Okay, so that's what he was drawing on the morning of the shooting. And then uh, she continues on uh, talking about the, the parents were then summoned to the school, as you might expect. And uh, here's how that went. At the meeting, James and Jennifer Crumbly were shown the drawing and were advised that they were required 
to get the sh their son into counseling within 48 hours. Both James and Jennifer Crumbly failed to ask their son if he had his gun with him or where his gun was located and failed to inspect his backpack for the presence of the gun, which he had with him. James and Jennifer Crumbly resisted the idea of then leaving the school at that time, of, of their son leaving the school at that time. Instead, James and Jennifer Crumbly left the high school without their son. Okay, so they decided to go home, as she explains, after they were just, I mean, I'm, I'm it's hard to wrap your head around that one. You, you're called to the school, your kid has written stuff like that on a, on a piece of paper, and uh, they say, you need to bring your, your son home, and the parents say, well, we don't want to take off work. So they leave, and the kid goes back to class, and then soon after, he's shooting up the school. Let's uh, keep watching. When the news of the active shooter at Oxford High School had been made public, Jennifer Crumbly texted to her son at 1122, I'm sorry, at 122 p.m., quote, Ethan, don't do it, end quote. At 1.37 p.m., James Crumbly called 911, reporting that a gun was missing from his house and he believed his son may be the shooter. Further investigation revealed that the six-hour nine-millimeter handgun purchased by James Crumbly was stored unlocked in a drawer in James and Jennifer's bedroom. The gun recovered from the shooter at the school after the shooting was the same gun that was purchased by his father, James Crumbly, on November 26, 2021, in the presence of his son. Based upon the foregoing, the Oakland County Prosecutor's Office requested and received um, authorized, we charged four counts of involuntary manslaughter as to James Crumbly and four counts of involuntary manslaughter as to Jennifer Crumbly. Okay, so that, that's, that's the story behind why the charges were filed, which is, I think, unprecedented. I'm not aware of any other case where the parents were charged in a school shooting like this. And that's why I was very apprehensive at first when I heard that they were filing charges against the parents. Um, apprehensive about the, the precedent of holding parents legally liable for the actions of their kids. And I know to some people, especially non-parents, you might think, well, well, why shouldn't you? You know, this should happen more often. If your kid goes out and does something terrible, um, something, the worst possible thing, like shooting up a school, then clearly you failed miserably as a parent. You've done something terrible uh, yourself, and, and so you should be held accountable for that. Um, and oftentimes that's probably the case. If you've got a 15 or 16-year-old kid doing something like that, it's, it stands to reason it's a very good chance that the parents have failed miserably or, or, or worse than that. But that's not always the case. I mean, one of, one of the realities of parenting, one of the really scary things about parenting um, is, is that you know, your, your control over your child only goes so far. And at the end of the day, they are agents operating in the world with free will. And especially once, you know, they leave your home and they become adults and they go out into the world, you know, you can't, you, you can't stop them from making horrible decisions. You know, all, all you're able to do as a parent is influence your child. 
And if you're doing it the right way and you're and you're you are the correct sort of influence, then yeah, I mean there's there should there shouldn't be a situation where they're doing something really horrible like this, especially when they're still kids. But there are you know mental illnesses that you have to account for. And also again, as they as they get older and they they go out of the house and they become adults, especially, um, I mean, you know, this is something people even do if there's someone in their in their twenties who commits a, her- a horrible crime, and then the, the immediate assumption is, oh, they must have been raised wrong. Maybe. Seems like there's a, a pretty good chance of that, but not necessarily. Because all kinds of things, even if you do everything perfectly as a parent, all kinds of things can still go wrong that you can't control. And one of those things is simply that this is another human being who makes their own choices. Make one bad choice, leads to another, leads to another. And before you know it, your kid has fallen down this dark hole and uh, can be very hard to retrieve them from it. Also, that, that's, that's one reason why you, you, might be, you might worry about the precedent of charging parents in a situation like this. Also, you worry about uh, an activist DA crusading against gun rights. Is she trying to put the Second Amendment on trial like Binger up in Kenosha? Now, I think there's still room for concern on both counts, especially the second count about putting, you know, about an activist DA, Uh, especially because the DA here announced charges against these parents before they had even been brought into custody, which is another unprecedented thing. That's not the way this usually works. You go and arrest them and charge them, and then you go to the media and tell them what you did. But they're still walking around out there free, and you're announcing charges. And apparently they went into hiding and it took about a day to find them. And they found them in some industrial park somewhere in Michigan. Which is one of the things that happens as a DA when you announce the charges before you, before you arrest the people. So that, that would give the appearance that she's in this for publicity. Even so. So those, those are the concerns and everything. Even so, based on this information, um, the information that she lays out, we can say that the parents at a minimum acted with extraordinary recklessness, at a minimum. And uh, we could probably say something even even worse than that. And they obviously also knew that their child was disturbed. I mean, if there's a shooting at your kid's school, God forbid, and your first thought is that my kid is the one shooting, if, if if your first fear when you hear about the shooting, is that your kid is the shooter and not a victim of a shooter, then that obviously shows that you know your child is deeply disturbed. And of course you know that. Of course you know that. As a parent, you're not going to know everything about your child, especially if they go to public school and they spend so much time out out of sight, out of view. There's going to be a lot you don't know about your kid. But if he's the kind of kid capable of doing something like this, you are at a minimum going to know that he's disturbed and he's got serious problems. And yet you go out and buy him a handgun. Leave it in an unlocked drawer. He's taking pictures on social media with it. Searching for ammo during school hours. And you laugh about it. And we know that they knew he was disturbed because, first of all, they were told about the, the drawing and the pictures and everything he wrote. But when they heard about the shooting, she texts, don't do it. She knew it was him. 
uh, yeah, this goes this goes beyond parental recklessness. This is uh, this goes to involuntary manslaughter. So I think these are the right charges in this case. I hope it doesn't set a precedent, an undue precedent. Um, and I hope the DA doesn't turn this it doesn't try to turn this into a, it, prosecuting the Second Amendment type of thing. I don't know. We'll find out. But you have to hold the parents responsible in a, in a case like this. All right, moving on. There have been. Um, Reports for months now that everybody hates Kamala Harris at the White House and they want to get rid of her, but they're basically stuck with her because you can't bring her on to the job purely because of her race and gender and then fire her. You can't do that. It doesn't work that way. So there have been all kinds of extremely forced sounding statements from the White House talking about how, them, how much they love Kamala and how much respect they have for her. While the sources are talking behind the scenes off the record and saying she's terrible and they don't like her. Uh, the public face they're putting forward, Jen Psaki has come out and they've all said, oh, no, she's great. We love her. Uh, kind of similar to the statement you get from NFL owners voicing their faith in the head coach who's 0-15 two days before they fire him. Except again, in this case, they can't do that. They can't fire her. Uh, so with Kamala, there's also been a mass exodus of staffers leaving, resigning. And there's been reports like this from Business Insider, and this just came out today. It says, a former Kamala Harris staffer says aides have to endure, quote, a constant amount of soul-destroying criticism. The article goes on and says, a major issue that several staffers raised with Harris's refusal to analyze briefing materials set forth by employees uh, was Harris's refusal to analyze briefing materials set, by, set forth by employees, which reportedly resulted in her scolding them if she appeared to be unprepared. Uh, quote, it's clear that you're not working with somebody who's willing to do the prep and the work, one former staffer told the newspaper. With Camilla, you have to put up with a constant amount of soul-destroying criticism and also her own lack of confidence. So you're constantly sort of propping up a bully, and it's not really clear why. Former Harris aide uh, Gil, Jill uh, Duran left her office in 2013 after five months in, uh, in the role when uh, she was California's attorney general. He told the Post that the turnover in the vice president's office points back to her. He told the newspaper, quote, one of the things we've said in our little text groups among each other is what is the common denominator through all this? And it's her. Who are the next talented people you're going to bring in and burn through and then have them pretend they're retiring for positive reasons? And Harris's office has responded to this, by the way, and they've said that, uh, of course, this is sexism and racism. That's where all this is coming from. Now, this is a little tough for me when I read stories like this, because I, I can completely believe that she's a tyrant. I'm sure she is. But also, we have to keep in mind that her staffers are all a bunch of whiny millennial lickspittles. So I'm, I'm sure if you tapped them on the shoulder and said, hey, your shoe's untied, they would say, this is soul-destroying criticism. But even so, Kamala is terrible. And um, yet the four statements of support coming out are really pathetic. But none of them compare to this. Here's a tweet from David Ginn's. Uh, who's a staffer for Kamala. He put out this statement today, or a, a tweet. This is last night. He says, Hi, my name is David Ginz. I work for Vice President Harris on behalf of the American people as Deputy Director for Operations and absolutely love my job. Just thought some of you should know. And there's a photo. Now look at this photo. Let's put this photo up. My God. <laughs> a picture says a thousand words, and so does this one, except it's just the word pathetic 1,000 times in a row. Look at the expression on his face, staring straight ahead, trying to muster a smile, but there's like this look of fear in his eyes, probably because Kamala's just out of frame pointing a gun at his head. And then, and then look at the photo of Kamala and her husband on the wall. This is the weirdest thing I've ever seen. 
Who put, first of all, who puts a photo there at all? I'm, I'm no interior decorator. My wife will tell you that. But you don't you just put a random photograph that big crammed up against the door right above like the, uh, the it looks like the thermostat or something there. And why that, and why that photo? It looks almost photoshopped into the, into the picture. And who has a photo of their boss and their boss's spouse on the wall? Does Camilla require this of all her underlings, maybe? And I also want to point your attention, just one other thing, keep this picture up here, because there's one other thing that I've been, I've been pondering. So you also notice, I want to point your attention to the, that circular hole in the desk, right where uh, David Ginz is sitting. You see that? I don't want to know what that hole's there for. This is Kamala Harris we're talking about. The imagination runs wild. But uh, that's, that's the best they could do. They, they needed to get a staffer on the record posing for a photo, looking, looking happy in his job. And the best they could get is the deputy director of uh, operations sitting at a desk with a suspicious hole, barely cracking a smile. Okay. This is from the Daily Wire. It says, new details emerged on Sunday about why CNN decided to fire star host Chris Cuomo on Saturday evening as the network conducted an investigation into Cuomo's role in helping his brother, then New York Democrat Governor Andrew Cuomo, navigate a sexual misconduct scandal. Deborah S. Katz, a left-wing attorney, said in a statement on Sunday that she is representing a client who claims that Chris Cuomo engaged in serious sexual misconduct against her at the network. Katz said she notified CNN of the allegations on Wednesday and that the allegations are ultimately what led to Chris Cuomo being fired from CNN. Um, and, uh, so that's why they finally announced that it was official. At first they suspended him and it was, they were, it was kind of, we were expecting maybe they'd bring him back on like they did with Jeffrey Tubin, but now they're getting rid of him because of sexual misconduct at the, at the workplace. Of course, Jeffrey Tubin also had workplace sexual misconduct when he masturbated in front of his coworkers on a Zoom call, but he's got that exception. I'm not sure why. Um, increasingly I've, I've come to believe that Jeffrey Tubin must have, compromising photos or something of someone high up in the CNN food chain. There's got to be some explanation for how he's still there. But Andrew Cuomo is gone. Uh, or rather, Chris Cuomo and Andrew Cuomo. It is the fall of the Cuomo house. And I think with this story, this story is kind of a, is, is, is good because it, it provides us an example of the distinction between canceling and accountability. The defenders of cancel culture will, will say that, well, no, we're not canceling people. We're just holding them accountable. But this is what accountability looks like, okay? This is what someone loses their job and they deserve to lose it, and they're being held accountable for what they've done. That's what this looks like. Because for one thing, okay, he's being punished for things that he's done currently and recently. Okay, helping his brother behind the scenes. This, this workplace sexual misconduct sounds like it was recent. So this is not digging up things from a decade ago or 20 years ago. Looking for reason to get rid of him. These are things that he has done, is doing currently. And this is also focused on actions, not words or opinions. Okay, that's another hallmark of cancel culture. Very often you're getting canceled for things that you've said or opinions you've expressed. And also, again, very often these are someone wants to cancel you. The powers that be want to cancel you. So they go looking, they go digging for something. 
and they find something from 10 years ago that nobody cared about at the time, didn't offend anybody, and they bring it up to light and they conjure up uh, outrage over it. That's not the case here. And the main thing, of course, is that, uh, that, that tells us this is not a canceling, is that he's, he's been given a thousand chances. With cancel culture, there's no forgiveness, of course. There's no grace. There are no chances. Because it's the institutions of power deciding they want to get rid of you, and they'll take the first excuse they can find. Here's an entirely different situation where the institutions of power wanted to keep Chris Cuomo in place. And they were willing to overlook many different forms of misconduct and many different ethical violations until it just it was one thing after another and they had no choice anymore and they had to fire. All right. Uh, what else do we got here? Okay. So, you know, I, I remember when my son was about six and we were, we were driving along and we stopped at an intersection and there was a homeless guy there. And my son said to me, he asked me, he said, daddy, why do we let people be homeless? That's what he asked. And, uh, and, and I said, well, what do you mean let? And he said, well, why don't we all in the world just give, give, give the homeless people money and give them a house? There are a lot of houses. And I said to him, stop being such a damn lib, okay? I didn't really say that. What I try to do is instead is explain in as simple a way as possible that very often people find themselves in these kinds of situ- unfortunate situations, not because the world necessarily forced them into it, but sometimes because of things going on inside them. And I said that, sadly, for a lot of homeless people, they have a problem that can't be totally solved simply by giving them money or giving them a home. But we still do give them them money. We give money to the homeless because that's the most we can do as strangers passing by. And it's good to help people to the extent that you can. Anyway, my son had a very simplistic way of looking at the problem because he's a child and that's fine. Uh, It's not so fine for adults, though, to continue to look at the problem with the same level of naivete. Which brings us to this, the New York Times. It says, uh, here's their headline. As many New York City hotels sat empty during the pandemic and homelessness continued to rise, it was a once in a generation chance to convert struggling hotels into affordable housing, but none were converted. So what happened? The article goes on to talk about how um, all of these empty hotels were just sitting there in New York City and why why don't we put the homeless in there? Simple as that. And it points out that other cities and other states have done exactly that, which is true. This is something that that various different localities have tried. They tried it in Tulsa. And TulsaWorld.com just so happened to have a report on on, uh, the progress of of this program in Tulsa. Reading partway through here, starts with a nurse practitioner who worked at the homeless hotel in Tulsa. And uh, it says, nurse practitioner Amber Vo figured she'd be consulted when it came time to decide who would get permanent housing and who wouldn't. As the person in charge of the hotel's health clinic, she'd gotten to know many of the clients and believe she could contribute to the conversation. Much to her surprise and disappointment, those discussions never happened. I was the medical provider, she said. At the very least, I should have been involved in some of these conversations. I didn't even know it was happening until the people had already been told they were being put out and they would come into my clinic having emotional mental breakdowns because of how scared they were and begging me to help. Vo said about uh, 10 to 20 clients a week were being sent back into the streets. In the last month, the hotel was operating. And most were no better prepared for life outside the hotel than they had been when they entered. Uh, there was no incentive, she continues. She says, there, were no, there was no incentive for them to kind of practice skills that would make them more successful once they were on their own. Maybe in an apartment, like taking care of property, showing up for appointments, just communicating with their caseworkers. It's common knowledge that prostitution and drug use were part of everyday life at the hotel, Vo said, and nothing was done about it. 
She said, quote, these people were not given the support they needed to be successful anywhere. Addiction ran rampant through, through there. We had a lot of people confide in us that they had been clean until they got to the hotel. But because the drug situation was so bad there, they relapsed. Uh, then it goes on to, into many more gritty details about how this hotel operated. And it actually made the situation worse for a lot of the people who checked into the homeless hotel. We got a picture here of what uh, these hotel rooms looked like after the homeless had left them. And there's just garbage strewn all over the place. Now, in fairness, my hotel rooms don't look much better than that once I check out, but they, they do look a little bit better. So, um, and, and, but at least we could say there were no, from what I understand from this article, there were no meth labs in the building, and um, which is better than the situation in San Francisco where they did the same kind of thing at a motel in San Francisco and the homeless started converting the rooms into meth labs. Now, is this surprising? No. Why? Because people who are chronically homeless, I mean, chronically, not like someone who falls on hard times and they temporarily find themselves between housing situations or that sort of thing. I mean, chronically homeless. Um, they are that way in the vast majority of cases because they're either drug addicts or they're severely mentally ill, or both. Um, you're, you're prob- it's just it's going to be very rare to have someone who is not addicted to drugs and is mentally competent, and yet is living on the sidewalk, in you know sleeping on a cardboard box for weeks and months on end. Because a mentally competent person who's not addicted to drugs, you know it's not it's not difficult to find some kind of housing. Might, it's not going to be great housing, but you could find something. You know, you get some kind of job. Might not be a great job that pays that that pays very well, but you find you should be able to find some kind of job in fast food or something, and you can afford some sort of housing situation. So, if there are people just living on the street for months and months and years on end, then that tells you that there is something else going on here internally. Uh, now, does this mean that it's not sad or that we shouldn't try to help people in the situation? No, of course not. It just means that the problem isn't that they don't have homes. That's not the fundamental problem. The problem is deeper than that. The fact, again, is that any non-drug addicted, non-mentally ill person will be able to find some kind of housing. So if they're not, then there's something else going on. And so if you, if, if you just open up a hotel and you throw them in there, it's going to fall apart and go to hell because now you have a whole lot of mentally ill drug addicts under one roof. So you've got, you've got to get to the underlying problems. But, of course, in our society and with the left, we're always trying to, we're always engaging with these problems on the surface. You can never go below the surface. We're always, we're dealing with circumstances rather than people. And we want to pretend that... Um, Anyone who's in a bad circumstance, well, it, it, it's the, the circumstance is what has caused it. We, we don't want to go deeper than that and look at what's going on internally, the choices that they've made, because then we get into what, what would be called victim blaming or whatever else. All right. Uh, what else do we got here? The Surgeon General has said that, uh, this is good news, we can see our families on the holidays under certain conditions. Uh, he's made this announcement. Let's uh, let's play that. 
Uh, but if you do as many families did, you get vaccinated and boosted, you use testing judiciously before you gather, you gather in well-ventilated spaces and use masks mm -hmm. whenever you can in public indoor spaces, your risk can be quite low and your holidays can be quite fulfilling. That's what so many families experienced this past Thanksgiving. So you wear masks with your family, get, get uh, jabbed and boosted, make sure everyone's jabbed and boosted, wear masks, you know, socially distance from one another. And you can have a quite fulfilling holiday. I, I don't know. You know, when I think about what, what makes for a fulfilling holiday experience with family, I think one of the, one of the, the essential aspects of that, uh, of that experience, what makes it fulfilling, is that you can, like, see each other and see each other's faces. You really can't have any kind of fulfilling social interaction when you're both covering your faces. But I guess we have to give thanks to the Surgeon General, at least for giving us permission to celebrate Christmas. So we, we, we can do that. But um, celebrate Christmas as long as you're treating your family preemptively like they're all diseased. And then it'll be fine. All right. Finally, here's a, another sort of emperor has no clothes situation. Or maybe em the emperor is wearing women's clothes, I guess. Um, a trans, this is from the Daily Mail, this is a trans swimmer and senior at the University of Pennsylvania who previously spent three years competing as a man is now crushing records in women's events, sparking outrage amid controversy surrounding transgender athletes. Uh, you can see the picture there. There's, there's the man, formerly named Will, now goes by Leah Thomas, 22, has competed in a number of events recently, including a tri-meet with Cornell and Princeton Universities on November 20th where the senior blasted UPenn records in the 200-meter and 500-meter freestyle, posting times that beat almost every other female swimmer across America. <laughs> uh, with a time of uh, 143.47 in the 200-meter freestyle, Thomas would have been in line to secure a silver medal at the NCAA Women's Championships while, while her... I'm reading from the article, and this is the... Pro, I'm just reading verbatim in the article. While her, quote-unquote... 435.06 in the 500-meter freestyle would have been good enough to win bronze. Um, this is the latest controversy in the ongoing argument over whether trans people should be allowed to compete in sports alongside athletes of the opposite gender than they were assigned at birth. Oh, there we go. Let's, let's, okay, can we stop there on that picture for a second? Yeah. That's a woman, folks. That's, that's, we're supposed to believe that's a woman. Why is it a woman? Well, he, he grew his hair out. That's what makes him a woman. A woman. This is probably one of the more egregious. All, every case of a male competing against women in female sports is egregious and, and ridiculous and outrageous and wrong. Uh, this one more than most, because this guy, as I said in the article, he competed against men for three years. So he'd been a man his entire life, competing against, there he is there, in his former life before going through the radical transformation of growing out his hair. Uh, there, there he was. And uh, so for, for three years. And then in his last year says, you know what? Uh, I'm a woman. I'm going to go over here. And starts dominating. Gold, silver, bronze, record times. And, and to, to show you how absurd these kinds of situations are, it's not so much comparing the man's time to the women that he's beating. What you really have to do, and I don't have it in front of me, but I'll be interested to do this. You, you, you take that man's time and compare it to the other men. 
And what I could guarantee you is, I mean, this guy, he may have held his own against, uh, against the men. But I guarantee you, he wasn't winning gold and silver medals all over the place. Okay, he, wasn't, he, of course, was not dominating at all. Certainly not, not to the level that he's dominating now. So what you usually have are, uh, in these situations, you, you have male athletes who at best are middling athletes. The example we've talked about before in Connecticut, where you've got these, uh, these two guys raced against the girls in high school track, the famous case, now going through the courts. But those were, th- those were men who barely qualified for state competitions against the men. I mean, they couldn't even get on the track. They go over against the girls, and they're you know, in the, at least in the top three in every race. That's what, that's what it always is. It's, it, it's always middling, mediocre male athletes going over to girls and dominating. Which tells you, of course, that, the, that what do you know? There is, a, there is a, a dramatic biological difference between the sexes. But also, it, it continues to be very interesting that it's always the men in the middle of the pack or the bottom of the pack who discover that they're women. It's never a man at the top of the pack. Has there been one single case of a man who was dominating against the males? He was already top three all the time. And then he discovered he was a woman and went over and and, and raced against the girls. I don't think it's ever happened. So you might, you might conclude, you might start to suspect perhaps that there are some mediocre male athletes who are um, who who are encouraged, perhaps, to discover a female identity because that's the only way that they can consistently win. And even if it's not, even even if that's not the case, I mean, even if this guy, I can't get inside his head. I don't know what his true motivations are. I'm very suspicious of what they might be, but I don't know. Regardless, though, whatever his motivations are, it's it's still wrong. And everybody knows it. I mean, you see this guy, like n- nobody. Can we put up that picture again of, of him with the other girl? N- you see this pic, no one thinks that this is, like, no one is looking at this and say, oh yeah, th- those, are, those, are, those are both women, exactly equal. You know, he's a woman in the exact same way that she is. It makes total sense. It's totally fair to put them on the same team together. Nobody thinks that. Nobody. Even far on the left, they know. They don't actually believe this. It's not not that they've convinced themselves that this makes sense, or it's right, or it's logical, or it makes any scientific or moral sense, or that it's justified. For them, it's all politics. It's all ideology. And they simply don't care. They don't care about the illogic of it. They don't care about the moral and ethical implications of it. They don't care about that. But everybody knows, I think, I believe. All right, let's get now to the comment section. Finally, we can talk about American financing. Look, if you, if you've, uh, if you own a home and you haven't refinanced, what are you waiting for? Mortgage rates are at historic lows again, which means you could easily drop your rate and your monthly payment. All you got to do is call American Financing, America's home for home loans. Take advantage of a free mortgage review. That's right. The, the review is free. 
meaning there's no pressure, there's no obligation, there's no upfront fees, just a simple conversation with a salary-based mortgage consultant, somebody who is going to listen to and guide you so you're getting a custom loan that achieves your goals. From lower rates to shorter terms, even the ability to access cash from your equity, they're ready to find you the best deal possible. Does it sound too good to be true? Maybe it does, but it is true. You could save up to $1,000 a month. You may even skip two mortgage payments, creating greater upfront savings as well. And you can pre-qualify for free by calling 866-569-4711. That's 866-569-4711. One more time, 866-569-4711 or visit AmericanFinancing.net. Jessica Jones says, having to deal with periods and period products is awkward enough when there are only other girls around. My discomfort would skyrocket if there were boys a lot in the restroom with me, especially back when I was a young teenager. Um, Yeah, Jessica, but as we uh, just covered, you you don't matter, unfortunately. Um... According to the left, you don't matter. I mean, you should matter, but but you don't, says the left. Joy Barkis says, I love how the least festive Daily Wire host has the most festive studio. Uh, yeah, we do. We are finally decorated for Christmas here at uh, the Matt Walsh studio. And I don't know if you can see and fully appreciate, of course, but our our alien is uh, is in the Christmas spirit. He's got the Santa Claus beard on and the Santa Claus hat. Um Daniel B. says, Matt, love seeing you, love to see you repping your own swag. I was waiting for it and you delivered. It may be so, if I may be so bold, I think there needs to be some merch allowed uh, to us, uh, some Matt Walsh skinny jeans and polka dotted shirts. Just a thought. Love the show. Well, we will always be adding uh, new swag to the Swag Shack, which you can go to dailywire.com slash shop. And um, yeah, I, I have been, I've been angling for, we need at least a polka dot shirt. I don't know why you would say we need skinny jeans. I don't wear skinny jeans, as we've covered many times. Uh, and you're banned from the show for saying that, by the way. Almost forgot. Um, Sarah says, we need a makeup tutorial from Sean with Matt as the test subject. Now, listen, Sarah, I may be the most prominent LGBT author in the country, but I have my limits. But I draw the line somewhere, okay? Uh, Deep Wild Violet says, hospice nurse here. I've heard lots of people say at the end of their life, either that they are happy to have their family around them or that they regret not spending more time with family on vacations with people they love, etc. I have never heard a a patient say they wished they'd have worked more or made more money regardless of economic class. Yeah, and that's got to be unique insight and perspective that you have. Tragic insight and perspective. But having never, you know, I've, I've never worked in hospice myself. I've only been around a few people at the end of their lives. But um, th- this would seem apparent. And, w- and we could see that within ourselves, too. Like, you can look forward to your own death whenever it comes. It might be tomorrow. It might be in 50 years, whatever. And you already know what sorts of things you're going to regret, what sorts of things you wish you had done more often. Yeah, another great example is, um, you know, we all spend 15 hours a day on our phones and staring at screens, but I'm pretty sure, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you've also probably not had any, anybody uh, in, their, in their last breaths at hospice say that they wish they'd spent more time staring at screens. So we know that. I mean, while we're sitting there for 15 hours looking at the phone, you just know that you're going to, that this a, a total waste of time. You're going to regret it, but we can't help ourselves. Um, 
Girder says, hey, Matt, I think you'll love the, uh, the tidbit that not only is it fairly common and normal for a six-year-old to be a Fortnite expert, it's fairly common gamer knowledge that about 90% of Fortnite experts are under the age of 10. Yeah, I, don't, I, I can't remember what that was referring to, but there was yeah, some, someone who, who said that their six-year-old son was a Fortnite expert. Um, there's no reason for that. Okay, now I, I understand by most people's, you know, judgment, I'm, I'm kind of extreme on this, that I don't plan on my kids playing video games at all. But I, but, I, but I do understand that as the kids get a little bit older and they become teenagers, it might be more difficult to keep them away from that stuff. And, um, you know, maybe you start introducing some of it. But, but at the age of six, at the age of six, it's, it's very, very easy to determine what kind of entertainment your kids are going to have access to. And so that's a choice you have to make. If, if your kid at six years old or five years old is addicted to video games, like I know so many are, you've chose, you have made that lifestyle choice for your kid. Which doesn't make any sense to me at all. On Thursday, Biden announced his winter COVID plan, and it's apparent that his administration is only going to double down on their authoritarian policies. Not only did Biden announce that he's extending the federal mask mandates for public transportation, but Jen Psaki admitted that the administration is actually considering requiring Americans to be fully vaccinated in order to fly domestically. You heard that correctly. If you want to visit your family for the holidays, you may need to drive across the country rather than fly, or you need to comply. The Biden administration is working overtime to force you to do the latter. That's why our lawsuit against Biden's vaccine mandate for private employers is so vital. We need to stop this madness before it grows. If we prevail in federal court, it will weaken the Biden administration's ability to implement these authoritarian measures. But we need your help. If you haven't signed our petition denouncing Biden's authoritarian vaccine mandate, I need you to stop what you're doing right now. And uh, or stop after the next segment and, and then you can do it. But either way, um, go to dailywire.com slash do not comply and add your name to the petition. We need to send an overwhelming message to this administration that the American people will not comply. We have a goal of reaching one million signatures, which would provide a major boost to our legal challenge. We're more than halfway to our goal, but we need your help to cross the finish line. So please sign the petition at dailywire.com slash do not comply. And um my best-selling children's book. You know, I've accomplished many things in my lifetime, but just last week I made one of my ultimate dreams come true. Uh, my best-selling children's book that, as you know, sold out in less than 24 hours and uh, was also, as we talked about at the start of the show, crowned the best-selling LGBTQ plus book on Amazon. Uh, this is a sensation. Everyone's buying it. Everyone's talking about it across the entire world. And uh, if you want to get your copy, go to johnnythewalrus.com. It's back on Amazon now, but uh, the easiest way to get the book is go to johnnythewalrus.com and reserve your copy today. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. Today we cancel, probably not for the first time, mid-tier squad member Rashida Tlaib. We last saw Rashida in an interview on Axios explaining why all federal prison inmates, including sex traffickers and child rapists, should be immediately released from prison. The idea she was hawking on the House floor this week isn't, or last week rather, isn't quite as bad as that, but it's almost as bad. It's a bit more mainstream anyway, and that is student loan forgiveness. But the interesting thing about Rashida's pitch for student loan forgiveness is that she is herself a perfect example of why we should not forgive student loans. Listen for yourself. I worked full time Monday through Friday and took weekend classes to get my law degree and still close to $200,000 in debt. 
and I still owe about $70,000. And most of it was interest. Most of it was our own government making money and profit off of me. And guess what? I didn't go to the for-profit entities. I went to legal aid. I worked at the nonprofit organization fighting for, you know, the right to breathe clean air, to fight for the worker that was getting their wage, uh, you know, taken and stolen from their employer. I went and worked on immigrant rights and so much more. And all of that to say, we have to stop treating as if folks that are paying for education, as if they bought some bougie car or some big, you know, something beyond. Their, no, they were seeking an education. Okay, so Rashida Tlaib wants debt forgiveness, and uh, she complains that she still has 70 grand left on her loan, which was originally $200,000 for her law degree, she says. A degree that she's chosen not to use. She admits that she immediately took that degree that cost her well into six figures to attain and went off to be an activist at a nonprofit. Now she's a politician. Fortunately for her, she makes $175,000 a year in her current job, which raises the question, why should the taxpayer assume her debt when she earns an income more than double the national average? The fact that elected representatives earn more than double the national average is a separate issue entirely. I mean, I think that they should get paid. They should get paid the national average income. That's what I think. Um, for now, though, the point is simply that she, she chose the most expensive education path possible. Now she rakes in a sizable salary and yet still insists that the taxpayer fulfill her financial obligations for her. The appropriate response to that, to that argument is no. Pay your debts, you damned deadbeat. Now, I'm glad that Rashida Tlaib has wanted to make herself the face of this issue because she is the face of it. As an affluent, upper-class brat with a graduate degree, she does indeed represent a large portion of the people clamoring for debt forgiveness. In fact, people with graduate degrees account for half of all student loan debt. Half. That's because the average amount of student debt for bachelor degrees is only about $30,000. Not insignificant, but manageable. The way that we get to uh, into trillions of dollars collectively in terms of debt is through all of these people getting master's degrees where the average debt is $70,000 and law degrees and medical degrees where the average debt is $150,000 and $200,000 respectively. So when you hear about debt forgiveness, just know that half of that money, money that will come from the taxpayer, from you, will be going to upper-class, affluent, highly educated doctors and lawyers, and so on. Student debt forgiveness is upper-class welfare. That's what it is. Of course, I realize that plenty of people with graduate degrees are not doctors or lawyers. Um, some of them are not getting paid well at all. The, you know, the, the two years master's degree programs are largely useless, an enormous scam. And many people today are walking around with graduate degrees that serve no purpose whatsoever, and there's been no return on investment. Contrary to Tlaib's claim, they are indeed like, uh, you know, basically getting a bougie car, those graduate degrees. They're superfluous, extravagant, useless, showy. At least you can drive cars. You can't do anything with most of these graduate programs. But even so, who should be on the hook to pay for your superfluous and useless graduate degree? You or your neighbor? Really, if we wanted to talk about debt forgiveness for the middle class, for average working class Americans, we'd be forgiving mortgages or credit card debt or car payments. That's the kind of debt that most people deal with. Most of us don't have a $200,000 slip of paper sitting in a frame and hanging on a wall in our office. Maybe the student debt forgiveness proponents, though, would say, sure, yeah, let's forgive all that debt, too. But that only, pr that only proves that they're a bunch of mental children. They have no understanding of or appreciation for the financial realities of life. 
They think a magic wand can be waved to solve all these problems, even as the government's magic wand that it waved over the last two years has led to skyrocketing inflation and an economic situation that's even worse than the one that these measures were supposed to solve in the first place. When it comes down to it, this, this is, again, a question of who should be responsible for the debts that you take on. If you enter into a contract and agree to pay X amount for Y product or Y service, who should be the one to hold up your end of the bargain? And there are only two possible answers to that question. You or everybody else. You might prefer the latter option, everyone else, but it's not justifiable on a logical or moral or financial basis. I'm sorry if you went to a master's to get a master's degree so that you could teach uh, the ABCs to first graders. I'm very sorry that such a terrible decision has caused you heartache. I am. But my well of sympathy dries up the moment you turn to the government and ask it to point its guns at me and reach into my wallet to solve your problems. You immediately go from being a sympathetic yet silly figure to a thief. Now, all that said, I do agree that our approach to higher education is untenable. And that's why I think we need to evaluate that approach rather than simply trying to get rid of the debt while leaving the fundamentally broken system still in place. Okay, so this, this, this again, like we talked about with the left, this is just like solve the homeless crisis by putting all the homeless in hotels. Yet they're still mentally ill drug addicts. So we solve our broken higher education system by just forgiving all the debt, but the system is still broken. The solution to the debt crisis going forward, the way to staunch the bleeding anyway and make sure it doesn't get worse, is to stop sending our kids into four-year institutions by default. Most of them don't need to be there and won't gain anything of lasting value from the experience. If there was a massive drop-off in enrollment and we encouraged our kids to be more discerning about the choice to enroll in college and we pushed them to explore other options aside from four-year institutions, then many of these problems will begin to sort themselves out. Colleges, for one thing, wouldn't be able to charge Lamborghini prices for degrees if they had to compete not just with each other, but with the whole array of other options that the world presents. If only people would explore them before signing up for the college path. That's the point that Rashida Tlaib ignores, or outright it rejects. She wants to keep the spigot turned on, siphoning millions of kids into the university pipeline, whether it will benefit them or not. Only she wants the government to be even more involved in funding and facilitating the whole disastrous system. So as usual, she has it all exactly backwards. And for that, she is canceled. And we'll leave it there for today. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Godspeed. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Walsh Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Production manager, Pavel Vodosky. The show is edited by Ali Hinkle. Our audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. Hair and makeup is done by Cherokee Hart. And our production coordinator is McKenna Waters. The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2021. Today on The Ben Shapiro Show, white nationalists march in Washington, D.C., but only the media seem to care. Chris Cuomo is out at CNN. 
And the Biden administration considers new COVID restrictions. That's today on The Ben Shapiro Show. Give it a listen. Listen. 